Hello everyone, this is Aidan Lang, and here I am again to talk about our summer opera, Puccini's Madame Butterfly. Madame Butterfly is, according to those lists of most performed operas, always in the top three performed operas in any given year around the world. That's perfectly understandable. It has everything on the surface which an opera needs. It has romance, it has tragedy, it has incredibly beautiful music, and it is normally depicted in a very attractive, visually appealing fashion. Everyone loves Puccini. Puccini's music is very easy to sit back and let it let it wash over you. And of course, it, it is glorious music. But he was also a very acute dramatist. Undoubtedly, Puccini's skill is to manipulate his viewer to come to exactly the emotional response that he wants. He leaves very little room for ambiguity compared to, say, Mozart. Mozart's great operas are full of choices and decisions and can go in many, many different directions. And we're doing Così Fantutti later this season, and if ever there was an opera which can go in multiple directions, it's Così Fantutti. Puccini, generally speaking, not so. But as I say, Puccini was much more acute as a dramatist than I think he's given credit for. Let's look at Madame Butterfly for a moment in the context of the three operas he wrote with uh, Ilica and Giacosa, that is La Boheme, Tosca, and Butterfly. They're all very different pieces, but it's worth just thinking for a moment how the audience goes on a different emotional journey with each of them. Tosca is essentially a thriller. In an awful way, we enjoy the pain, the suffering, the fact that death is is just around the corner and probably feel a bit guilty for doing so. It works in exactly the same way that we respond to a thriller today. Now, La Boheme, for me, is not a tragedy in the formal sense of the word. La Boheme is a story in which circumstance causes Mimi's demise. She, she is sick with tuberculosis. She can do nothing about that. Yes, you could take a socioeconomic viewpoint and say it's the poverty which causes her death and, and causes the conditions in which she lives. But I don't think you can really mount a production around that concept. Fundamentally, she's doomed to die because she's sick. It's very, very sad. But formally, it's not a tragedy. Tragedies are formed by human decision and human behavior. And so of the three of them, I would hold that Madame Butterfly is the one which has a true tragic nature. She is deceived, but she makes a decision which is her undoing. We, the audience, know at the very beginning of the piece, when we meet Pinkerton and the Consul Sharpless, we know right from the start that Pinkerton has no intention of making this a permanent arrangement. The entire drama is framed by that moment. Butterfly takes a very different viewpoint. She believes everything that Pinkerton has told her. She misunderstands his cruel jape about the robins. He'll be back when the robins return to nest. She's innocent. And she sticks to her belief in the love which Pinkerton has shown her for a very brief moment. Every other character in Act Two, in some way, advises her to be pragmatic and to forget. Goro, the marriage broker, 
she's visited by Prince Yamadori, a suitor. Sharpless, the consul, tries in his weak way to turn her round, and one is suspects that Suzuki, her servant, has said this on many times in the past, although she doesn't actually do it in the opera. But Butterfly sticks to her guns, and is ultimately undone by not only the actions and behaviour of Pinkerton, but also by her misguided belief in his honour. Honour is, of course, the operative word, and in the final scene, she returns to the customers of her own people and takes her own life. Indeed, on the dagger, her father's dagger, is engraved, it is better to die with honour than to live with dishonour. So to return to the tragic rhythm of the piece, Butterfly makes a conscious decision in between Acts 1 and 2, while Pinkerton is away, to remain true to an essentially dishonourable man. The nobility she finds at the end to take her life, I think, gives her a genuine tragic status. Yes, she's a victim of callousness in, in the same way that Mimi is a victim of illness, but whereas Mimi can do nothing about it, and, and death is an inevitable consequence of tuberculosis, Butterfly makes a conscious decision, and in her death achieves honour, she achieves nobility, and our response is more than just sadness at her death. It's a, a response of respect and understanding, and as such, I think that's why, for me, Butterfly is the one of the, the three great Puccini operas which might be termed a genuine tragedy. Now, Butterfly is an opera I remember seeing when I was relatively young in a standard version. But the production with which I can say I grew up is one I first saw when I was a student in Birmingham in the UK given by the Welsh National Opera. What was unusual about this production is that it played the hard-hitting first version of the opera. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about a piece which was changed radically between its disastrous premiere, its one-night stand in Milan in February of 1904, and the version which is commonly performed today. The director of the production, Joachim Hertz, was one of the great East German directors whose work became available to the West during the 1970s. This production, in fact, originated in the Cornish Opera Berlin 10, 12 years before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then Welsh National Opera put it in their repertoire in the late 70s, and it remained there for about 30 years. I worked at Welsh National Opera between 85 and 1990, and we had it on our stage many, many times. And I saw it since about uh, 10 years ago with Nuccia Focile, our beloved soprano who's sung so many times here at Seattle Opera. So what was different about it? It presented the opera as Puccini originally wrote it, before the piece got changed radically during the course of the next two years. Madame Butterfly had a disastrous one-night stand premiere at La Scala. It was booed, and Puccini set about making a number of revisions. What did the audience not like about it? Well, 
basically they found some of these scenes a bit long they found the second act hugely long and above all they hated the fact that the tenor was a deeply unpleasant character in other words the opera didn't suit the expectations of an Italian early 20th century audience. So what Puccini did, he turned the long second act into two separate acts, so it became a three-act opera. He gave the tenor an aria of remorse at the end, to which softened his character. And he, and I think wisely, cut some of the longer sequences within the wedding scene in Act One. And I, I, I have to say, I think the cuts he made are no loss. Certainly, Act One in the original version does outstay its welcome a little bit. This production stayed with me because what I saw was an incredibly hard-hitting piece, uncompromising in the way it portrays the arrogant imperialist attitudes to the Japanese people as exemplified by Pinkerton. It's once I entered the profession, I always saw it performed in the, what's known as the standard version, the version which Puccini, or rather his publisher Ricordi, settled on after performances in Paris in 1906. There's no doubt about it, it's not the same. It's much softer. And so what we're doing here in this production at Seattle Opera, we're not doing the 1904 original version in its entirety, but we have inserted a couple of little moments which remind one about how tough a piece this is. For example, to take a small thing, at the very end of the opera, we meet Pinkerton's uh, American wife, Kate Pinkerton. Now, in the original, she's come with one purpose in mind, to take away that child. She's unsparing in her cruelty, really, to Butterfly, who she considers like a, like a plaything. In the Paris version, and this is the version which is now accepted as the standard version, her part is reduced to almost nothing, and lines which were allocated to her were given to the consul, Sharpless. She comes across as a rather sympathetic character who's blameless and there to, in many ways, to give a bit of moral support to, to Butterfly. That's not what Puccini intended, and so in our production, we are going to play the original La Scala version of this short scene because it reminds us at the very end of the essential conflict which lies at the heart of his piece. The genesis of this piece is very interesting. It started with a sort of short story written by a Frenchman called Pierre Lotti, called Madame Chrysanthemum. Lotti's tale, Lotti was a, was a sailor, and, and his tale in many ways captures the, the core essence of a story. That is that Americans or overseas uh, visitors to the treaty ports coming to have a quick arranged marriage with a local bride purely for the duration of their stay. The tone of his book is cynical and he's exceedingly disrespectful to the Japanese wife who he considers conniving and out for as much money as she can get. The most important source to the opera is a short story by John Luther Long, which was turned subsequently into a play by David Belasco, the play which Puccini saw and inspired him to write the opera. Long is much more critical about the imperialist powers, whereas in Lottie's little novel, the criticism is of the behavior and attitude and planning of the Japanese bride. 
Long, in his novel, inverts this 180 degrees. His criticism is of the imperialist attitudes of the Western powers who traded and exploited Japan at the end of the 19th century. The character of Pinkerton in Long is an absolutely appalling man. He is patronizing, he's arrogant, he's rude, he asks Butterfly to give over her religion and her culture. Uh, In other words, it is a metaphor for the way that an imperialist power runs roughshod over the civilization with which they have ostensibly come merely to trade. It could be said that the novel, the play from which it's based, and indeed the opera, works at a metaphorical level to underline this strong social point that Long was making. Puccini's opera started with the same intense social critique as derived from Long's short story, but within two years it had been sanitized out of all recognition, and that consequently the new Paris version, which becomes the standard performing version, is a shadow of the work's original intent. I think this is compounded to a certain degree by the very nature of Puccini's music. Consider the glorious love duet between Pinkerton and Butterfly, which closes Act One. It's very hard not to be seduced by its charm, by its beauty, by the way it's structured and its logical conclusion. The more involved we get with that duet musically and emotionally, the more we tend to leave our critical faculties behind and forget the fact that this, from Pinkerton's point of view, is simply a one-night stand. He's going to be off in two or three days, whereas for Butterfly, it's a commitment for life. And this, of course, is the very heart of the story. Now, the danger is that we begin to react purely in an emotional way and not also retaining our critical faculties. I spoke earlier about the way the piece itself, over the course of two years, morphed into something very different from its original purpose and intention. In addition to this, I think, as so often with um, the standard repertoire pieces which get performed over and over and over again throughout the world, a certain laziness of performance tradition kicks in. Gustav Mahler, who not only was a great composer, but was a great, great opera conductor and amazingly never wrote an opera himself. But Mahler once said that tradition is just laziness. One of the problems I think Butterfly faces today is that it's done so often and it's done, sometimes I have to be honest with my listeners, that uh, it's often done with perhaps less rehearsal than is desirable, um, often performed by people who have done their roles many, many times. And so a sort of performance tradition kicks in. And even new productions I've seen have made no real effort to think about this piece afresh. Productions tend to do what is always done, and that's where some bad performance tradition kicks in. And one of the challenges, I think, for an opera company today is to think very seriously about this piece, to find a way that its hard-hitting heart can come over, but without appearing like a political lesson. I decided to bring this production by Kate Cherry, which 
was first done in New Zealand in 2013 because I looked around at other productions and couldn't find one which captured this fine balance between making you think but at the same time respecting the exquisite nature of the piece itself. At first glance, the production seems to fulfil all the standard requirements of the work, but actually it's been thought out in a very, very careful way. Visually, and it's incredibly beautiful to look at, but it, it takes the viewpoint that the restrained visual language of Japanese art is in itself being desecrated by the arrival of Pinkerton. The production shows little nods to things like Kabuki theatre. You'll see a deliberately painted backdrop to the garden, which appears from time to time, which is two-dimensional in the way that if you visit Kabuki theatre, you, you see definitely a painted backdrop rather than a realistic backdrop. The setting itself takes the idea of a butterfly caught in a lantern. So lanterns play an important part. And of course, any insect caught in a lantern is, is going to die at some point as, as, as they get burnt. And, and so butterfly is metaphorically burnt by the experience with Pinkerton. It's exquisitely beautiful to look at, but it's exquisitely beautiful for a very important dramaturgical reason. At risk of hammering this home, all art works at a metaphorical level. And although on the surface, Butterfly appears to be a realistic piece about real people, it's not, it's not dealing with archetypes or myths, but nevertheless, there is a metaphorical lesson being delivered within the piece. The ravishment of Butterfly by Pinkerton is effectively a symbol for the way that the Western powers, and it wasn't just the States, it was, it was Britain, it was France, it was Russia, it was the Netherlands, all exploited and took a, a advantage of their trading partner, the emerging Japanese nation. Certainly in Europe and, 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 and in New Zealand, I think the character of Pinkerton is emblematic not just of the states so much as of the Western powers as a whole. One of my colleagues here at Seattle Opera made an interesting observation to me. She said that in performances here in the US, audiences tend to see Pinkerton as a bad apple and therefore not symbolizing something greater than just the individual, which I think is crucial to an understanding of the piece. Now, one of the crises which the opera industry is facing at present is the fact that much of a repertoire of the latter part of the 19th century comes under the category of Orientalism or exoticism. And in today's different social viewpoint, some of these pieces present us producing companies with a challenge. Now, I think it's important to say that Butterfly doesn't really come into that category, even though Puccini appropriates some small elements of Japanese music into, into his score. The essence of Orientalism was a fascination with what is afar. Travelers tend to see what they want to see in their, in their reports back, and, and that reflected itself in a taste in the last couple of decades of the 19th century for Japanese art. Furthermore, and especially in, in French opera of the later part of the 19th century, composers used exoticism 
as a means of putting on activities or actions which were taboo or, or slightly raunchy under the guise that it was happening a long way off, so it was okay. And there was undoubtedly a, a sort of sense of frisson for the audiences. It was a safe way of depicting unsafe material. But Butterfly doesn't fall into this category whatsoever. This is a very serious piece which is examining a pressing social point and presents it in an unflinching way. The Japanese setting isn't just to provide an excuse for something exotic, something to consume casually. On the contrary, in other words, the piece is looking at the exploitation of that country rather than seeing to exploit it. Madame Butterfly is one of the absolute great roles of a soprano repertoire, and it needs a formidable singer. It needs a singer who is, can play a 15-year-old and yet has the vocal weight to carry sometimes some very, very dense orchestration. It's an incredibly long role. Once she's made her entrance, which is pretty soon in Act One, she's on stage for the entire time except a short sequence at the beginning of the third act or the second part of the second half. It carries an emotional challenge to be resilient in the face of opposition as the characters oppose her steadfastness and then to find at the end of the opera both the vocal guns for the final Shana and also the acting ability to find the nobility in the character as well is a huge challenge. I'm very pleased to say that we have two singers in Liana Haratunian and Yasuko Sato, two singers who are specialists in this role and both capture beautifully the many facets which this role requires. Our two Pinkertons, the Russian Alexei Dolgov and the young American singer Dominic Chenes, are both actually quite different singers and I think that's one of the beauties of having a double cast is that we'll get a, a definitely a different tone from each of them. This production does include Pinkerton's short Act 3 aria, Adio Fiorito Asil. It doesn't have to be done in a sentimental way. What was interesting in New Zealand is the way that the Italian singer who sang it found a sort of epiphany and moment of self-understanding in the aria rather than simply an appeal to the audience for forgiveness. So I'm look for, looking forward to seeing that slightly different tone repeated once more again on our stage. We decided not to double cast either Sharpless or Suzuki because we felt that the two performers we've engaged were very capable of singing the back-to-back -back performances which we have on a couple of occasions. So it's my great pleasure to welcome back Weston Hurt as Sharpless and also Rennie Rapier who was in Mary Stewart who's going to sing the role of Suzuki. Throughout the season, we are seeing quite a lot of Daniel Sumegi, a Seattle Opera favourite, and he's going to make a brief appearance as the Bonds before he takes a bigger role as Basilio in The Barber of Seville, and also hot off the success and the wonderful impact he made in The Magic Flute as Monositos, Rodel Rosel returns instantly to sing the role of Goro.
even in my short time, uh, it's been my huge pleasure to have worked with Carlo Montanaro on more than one occasion. And it, it's great to see him return to the pit to conduct this production. Carlo is such a, a wonderful colleague and uh, he understands what makes opera tick in a brilliant way. And I know this is a piece which he, he loves dearly, but also brings an incisiveness and, and a freshness to his interpretation. And I know he, he will really get his teeth into this thoughtful production. I've mentioned Kate Cherry, the director, but the designer plays an important part in Any Madden Butterfly. And this production uh, represents the US debut of the Australian designer, Christina Smith. Christina's designs were hailed on both occasions that the production was played in New Zealand. And I know you'll enjoy the really fine and beautiful aesthetic which we're putting on our stage. So at the end of the day, we, we always have to ask ourselves, what constitutes the success of a production? Madame Butterfly has got a lot going for you. It's one of the great operas. One cannot fail to be moved by it. But for me, what differentiates art from entertainment is that art contains a balance between emotion and thought. And I think a great performance of Modern Butterfly should lead the audience with a difficult sensation in their mind. So the audience should leave a performance of Madame Butterfly, not only moved by the individual tragedy of Butterfly herself, but I think also outraged at the behavior of the exploiting Western powers which have brought that tragedy into being in the first place.